So Acts chapter 2 is where we left off. Peter had preached a really not a very long sermon. It's really, you can really recite the sermon in, in about two minutes, I think, maybe less than that. So it's not even a very long sermon. We've been discussing in the book of Acts, the discovering the Holy Spirit. So we've said in the past, it's really, the book is titled The Acts of the Apostles, but it's probably better titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit because the difference, the dynamic that we see happening in this book is, yes, they'd been with Jesus, and yes, they'd been following him, and yes, they'd been walking with him, but he has ascended to the Father. He's, he's, they watched him go up, and he has poured out the Holy Spirit on them uh, to give them power and boldness for ministry, for service, for being witnesses. And it's life-changing. It's not about, it's, life is not so much about the, uh, the quantity, but the quality. And so a Spirit-filled life is about the quality of our life. Do we live a life that is filled with the Spirit of God? And that's, that's a supernatural life. That's not something you know, so many people try to live the church life, try to do what everybody else does, try to fit in. And w- without the Spirit of God, without being saved and having the Spirit of God fill your life, it's just not, it's not the things that you feel and do because of the Spirit of God in you are not natural things that everybody does. And I can sit here and try to explain that to you and you won't get it. You'll never get it until you experience it, until you invite God to have control of your life. Not just to show up at church, but just to invite God to have control of your life. It changes everything. You get a love for people that is so much deeper than what you've ever, ever experienced. And you go, where does that come from? It only comes from God. So that's the kind of life that we're talking about here in the book of Acts. And, and the result of that is we see the way that they're ministering, the things that they're doing. You cannot impersonate this. You cannot mimic it or fake it. It is only one way to have this kind of life, and that is from God and God alone. So Peter preaches this spirit-filled sermon, and even as he's preaching, it seems that in, this, in the middle of the sermon, he gets this sense that it's really hitting home. Maybe you've been to... You know, maybe it's been here or another church and you've heard someone preaching. Maybe it'll be today. And you're hearing the words and it's just hitting you deeply. And the word that was used there for cut to the heart back in uh, verse 37 was the word stabbed or pricked. They were stabbed. They were cut. It, it affected them deeply. It wasn't just a superficial, wow, that was a good sermon or he's really funny or, you know, whatever. He went too long today. It, was, it, would have, it touched their heart. And, and they wanted to respond, what do we do? And, and Peter led them to repent and to confess and to be baptized uh, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we pick up there in verse 40, and we're, I'm glad to see that it wasn't just a two-minute sermon. Verse 40 says, and with many other words, he testified. So that wasn't the end of the sermon. Peter kept on going and kept on talking and teaching the people that were there. Remember now, it's, it's the Feast of Pentecost which means Jerusalem is swamped and swarmed with pilgrims, travelers, people that have come from all over the world, from what modern-day Iran, modern-day Iraq, modern-day Turkey, modern-day Africa. They had all congregated there, and then the Spirit of God is poured out there. So they're from all over the world, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Just picture, well, this is maybe a little extreme, but picture Times Square on New Year's Eve. You know, just all kinds of people thronging there. Jerusalem is packed, and, and this is happening in the midst of all that. 
And so with many other words, Peter testifies and exhorts them. Exhortation is just calling them to, uh, to a change, calling them to be something they weren't before. And what did he say? He said, be saved from this perverse generation. So his call of salvation is not just from the judgment of God. We talked about that uh, in last sermon. Peter quoted the, the book of Joel, and Joel said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved from what? Saved from that awesome, fearful day of the judgment of God. But then Peter takes it even to the more practical standpoint of being saved from this perverse generation. And if you like to circle words and you like to keep track of these kind of things, I love words. I just love meanings of words, the the depth of understanding when you understand what a word means. Uh, The word perverse, uh, you can circle that, and if you like to write next to that, uh, scoliosis. It's the Greek word skolios, S-K-O-L-I-O-S. What word do we get in English from that? You know it. I just said it. So if you can't answer that question, scoliosis. I remember growing up in school. I was in in school, uh, high school in the 80s. I'm dating myself. Uh, But I remember this girl that I went to school with, and she had, it's like the only girl I knew, only, only girl in the school that had scoliosis, at least that was identified, and they made her wear this contraption. Anybody remember those things? She had some steel frame. She was like, uh, you know, Iron Man or something before Iron Man was popular. She had this whole frame, and they were trying to, you see her, she'd bring in her x-rays every so often. And it's like, you're looking at the x-rays like, whoa, that's, that's your spine? I mean, the thing was like an S-curve. It was awful. And uh, so that was scoliosis. It was crooked. It was twisted. It was distorted. It was bent. Ortho, the word ortho means to make straight. Orthopedics has to do with making something straight that has been crooked or bent. So she um, had this scoliosis. It was, nor- it was not normal. Now, if, you were, if she was in a, a society or in a group, an isolated group where everybody had scoliosis, she would look around and think she was normal. You would think that twisted was normal. Welcome to the world we live in. The world we live in Everything is so twisted that we look around at other twisted, we compare ourselves to other twisted things, and we go, wow, we must be normal. No, you're not normal. It's not normal. Everybody's just twisted the same. And that's the generation or the culture that we live in, that Peter lived in. This is the culture that the Messiah, God shows up and they kill him. But are we any different today? We want God out of everything. God out of the schools. God out of the government. God out, God out of churches. God out of homes. And, and without God, we just begin. It's like that dead tree laying on the forest floor. It's just, you, you ever seen it? It's all twisted. How does it do that? How does that happen? The trunk is just kind of all spirally and twisted. And, and society gets like that. In the absence of God, to make things straight, we just naturally are twisted because we live in a twisted world. And that was the same as Peter as it is for us today. So one of the beautiful things about getting saved, the first thing you do is you see how twisted you really were. I mean, I did things in, in, and I thought things and I had attitudes that I had no idea were wrong because they were common and they were normal. And I read the Word of God. And I said, whoa. It's like your eyes are open, the scales fall off, and you go, wow, that is so wrong. How could I have ever thought it was so right? How do they think it's so right? And then you begin to tell them that it's wrong, and, and they think you're a wacko Bible thumper. But I was, God saved me from that. 
because that twistedness, it just gets all contorted and just twists your brain and twists your life and twists relationships. And it's a mess, isn't it? Would you, would you agree that the world we live in is really, um, I mean, if you can't agree with that statement, you probably live under a rock and you probably don't have a mirror. <laughs> because if you look in the mirror, you have to admit, we're, we live in a twisted world. The problem is, I li- I'm part of this world. I was twisted. And God saved me. His word straightened out my life and is still straightening out my life. Still untwisting things that had been twisted, undoing attitudes that had been wrong, undoing behaviors that were sinful, setting me straight. I'm so thankful. Yes, I'm thankful that I'm saved eternally, going to live with the Lord forever, going to dwell in his house forever. But I'm also thankful that it wasn't just about eternal life. It was about watching other people that are twisted destroy their lives and going, thank you, God, for rescuing me from that. And that's the heart for me. That's the heart of evangelism. I mean, yes, I want to see people saved eternally. Yes, that's ultimately the destination and ultimately what matters. But it is so hard to watch people and their behaviors and their attitudes and their thoughts destroy their own lives and every relationship they have. It's hard to sit back. You have family members that are doing that. It's hard to watch, especially when you are the orthopedic surgeon or Jesus is the orthopedic surgeon. All we have to do is say, hey, I know a guy that can straighten you out. Straighten you up. And you introduce him to Jesus. So uh, Peter says, be saved. And it's, it's something, you can't save yourself from this perverse generation. You have, someone else has to come and rescue you out of it. I could not have saved myself. I couldn't see it. Verse 41 says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And baptism is something we see, you know, practiced. Jesus was baptized. It's, it's practiced in the book of Acts. It's taught about in the epistles. Uh, and we baptize. What a joy last summer when we had our baptism at Lake Monticello. The pictures, just I love looking at the pictures of everybody gathered around the lake as we're, we're baptizing people there. People ask, why don't we have a baptismal here in church like a lot of churches do? Well, because we got a huge one called Lake Monticello and it's free. So we just use that. Those who gladly, not, you know, thousands of people heard. Thousands of people heard. But they all didn't receive it. Not all of them gladly received what Peter had to say. So there were a lot that didn't get baptized, that didn't agree. But there were a, a lot that did agree. And those that gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. And actually, you look at the words to them in your Bible, they might be in italics. That means they're not in the original script. So it just says 3,000 souls were added. There were 120, right? They're in the, up, in the room praying and waiting on the Lord. 120 people. Now, after one sermon, there's 3,120 people. You want to talk about rapid church growth. And all that without a bounce house. How did they do it? Spirit-filled preaching. Spirit-filled witnessing, 3,000 people. Now, as I, even as I say that, I think back to the days when Calvary Chapel was 40, 50 people. And we look back sometimes longingly on those days. And, wow, you know, we remember when it was just a small church and everything was intimate and things were great. And, you know, we can, we, and I, those, were, those were great times. They were. But, you know, we, did, we, we set out to say, look, Lord, we're going to preach your word and whatever happens, happens. We never set out to have a growing church. You know, we, 
wasn't our goal or aim. We set out to do one thing and one thing only, preach the word. And, and, and if you do that, then love is naturally after that and with that. We'll preach the word and see what happens. And so it's been a challenge for our church. And if you're new here, you're coming in today, uh, recognize that uh, you know, this is a struggle that, that Calvary Chapel Fluvanna has had to go through. over the, you know, We're 12 years old and you know, we started out with two families in a living room and grew steadily, steadily, steadily up till 12 years ago or 12 years you know, from then to now, there, you know, there's more people coming. And, and so things have changed for us, and it's different. And I, I don't think they were upset about 3,000 people getting saved. It's easy to say, you know, we were glad. That, I'm speaking to those of us that have been around Calvary for a while. We were glad there was room for us here, that we could find a church where we could hear the word of God preached regularly. And we were glad. And so it's our goal and, and aim to say, hey, we want to now welcome in other people that are finding here what we found here grace and truth and those kind of things uh, and and jesus which is hard to find anymore in a church which it seems crazy to say but i think you understand that the chuckles say that we understand that the, the times are changing so the three thousand people souls i like even better than people soul three thousand souls were added now verse 42 Uh, begins this little section that is just so precious because the question is you've got this new great beginning 3,000 people get saved and oh it's so exciting it's you know there's a celebration and how long did it take to baptize 3,000 people where do you baptize 3,000 people Uh, they had what's called mikvot which is the um, ritual bathing places before you went into the temple you would have these baths where people would wash where they before they went in wash their hands wash their feet and and then go into the temple and so they probably baptized uh, people in those ritual cleansing areas or some other little pools of water that were in the area. Uh, so that's how they did it. But then what next? What next? See, when my kids were born, we didn't say, ah, they're born. Great, our job is done. We gave birth. No, that's the beginning. When you got saved, that wasn't the end. Yeah, I'm saved now. Great, got that solidified, got that secured. Now I can go do what I want and have, you know, know that I'm going to heaven. That's not what it's about. These people have just been born again. And now they have to grow. And Peter says a lot about that. Peter's the one in his second epistle that says, hey, folks, add to your faith. He says, first thing he says is moral virtue. Add to your faith moral virtue and add to moral virtue knowledge. And then he gives a whole, add to your faith. You're... you're, exercising experiencing having faith to be saved is just the beginning and and so you know there, there's more to come and that's so what do they do next after they say what are the things that made that early church what it was because it didn't last very long uh, they, they experienced problems because anytime people are involved you're going to have problems but so i want to speak to you guys in a really practical sense these four things there are four things that i think are still the pillars of what church life is all about. There's a lot of stuff that, that's just icing on the cake. You know, when you go down to the, to the, when you go to the restaurant and you want to get a good burger, you know, there's different kinds. There's, there's the mushroom and Swiss burger. There's this kind of burger. There's that kind. Of, I mean, there's all kinds of different hamburgers, right? But unless there's a big slab of meat in the middle, it's not a hamburger. You can't get a bun with some lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise, and, you know, some mushrooms on it and call that a burger, so without the essentials in the middle, then it's just fluff. It's nothing. It's nothing. You can't even call it. 
Without these essentials, I'm not even sure you can call it church. Because there's a lot of things that, that are named church. There's a satanic church. But that's not what we... And church is just people that... Church is just a word that means called out. It's, it's a gathering. So you can't apply the word in a general sense to any kind of gathering of people that are there for a certain purpose. But the ecclesia, the called out ones, we're called out from among the perverse generation, out from among the world we live in, to then gather together as a group. We need each other. And more and more so each week, each day, each year, because the world is going farther and farther in this direction. We don't fit in there anymore. Now, we're in the world. We're there. We're out there. We're, you know involved we're at the school we're on the field we're doing these things but i just you ever feel like i just don't fit in and that's good you should feel that way but here's where we fit here's where we understand each other so what do they continue in these are the things that the the pillars not just for the church because the church is not a building the church is not a sign at the end of the road the church is you so if you say well calvary chapel fluvan i'm not sure i like that church you're just saying you didn't like yourself The church is you. So we are the compilation of all of us individually. If all of us are doing these things, then then we as a group will have the health and wholeness that God has promised us as a church. And I have got way better things to do with my life than go through the motions of church. I have no interest in that. What I want is the real community that I see in the Bible, that, that is promised by God, that is headed up by Jesus Christ. I want the community, the church, the family that Jesus is the head of. And he is intermingled in and through because he's in our lives. And that's what we see here. Look at uh, verse 42 again. So here's what they did. They continued steadfastly. I'm just going to read them all and then we'll come back. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. It's a really simple list. If you got my email I like simple stuff. I'm a simple guy. I really, really am. Maybe I seem complicated. My wife's not here to challenge me on that. But uh, I, I like simple things. And one of the things I get frustrated with is our world is so complex and complicated. And I, I think church can just, it's gotten, I've been, I've talked to some pastors and I've seen some situations. I'm like, wow, that is really complicated. And we have tried to keep things really simple and really biblical around here. And I don't know, maybe we've succeeded in some ways. Maybe we've failed in some ways. But at least we have a sketch, an outline of what it can be like that helps to drive and determine what it is we emphasize and prioritize as God's people. Number one on the list. Well, actually, before I get into the list, first we have to deal with this word. They continued steadfastly. I like that. I'm an athlete. I understand what, it, what it's like to want to give up. If, if you've ever done anything hard, you understand what it's like to want to give up about halfway through. And if you've run a marathon or a half marathon or you've done some kind of uh, endurance event, you, they're called endurance events for a reason because it takes endurance to finish. And lots of people start the race. All kinds of people start the race. But much fewer finish. And we're not, about, we're not a people that start Christianity. We're like the Apostle Paul who said, I have finished my race. I've run my course. I've finished my race. And now I get the crown. You don't finish, you don't get a crown. You don't get the medal. So 
just recognize there were some things, there were these four things in their life that they were dedicated to. The word for, for continuing, uh, it actually comes from a root word meaning strength. These are the things they were strong in. And these are the things that they did despite difficulty, despite opposition, despite temptation to give up. These were the pillars in their life. And let me ask you, are, are these, as we go through, I want you to analyze your own life. Because these four things, when I do counseling, when I meet with people, typically my first question is around these things. How much you read in the Word? How much you pray? And, and we'll go through the list. But I meet very few people in counseling that have these four pillars as continual things in their life. I'm not talking about casual involvement. Maybe I can say it this way. As you think about these four things, I want you to think about this illustration. It's, a, it's an old story about the pig and the chicken. You ever heard the story of the pig and the chicken? All right, so the pig and the chicken, they've been talking in the farmyard one day, and the pig uh, says to the chicken, you know, I think we should go into business together. Really? Yeah, I think we should go into business together. Well, what, what do you want to do? Let's open a restaurant. Ah, okay, let's open a restaurant together. What do you want to call it? Let's call it ham and eggs. Okay. Uh, the chicken said, that sounds good. Uh, you know, the, and, and the pig's like, I'm not, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure I like that name, though. Why not? Well, because for you, it's just a contribution. But for me, it's total commitment. <laughs> Ham and eggs, see? Ham and eggs. Someone will explain it to you on the way home. <laughs> what was that? Ham and eggs? What do you mean? For the pig, it involves sacrifice. But for the chicken, show up, lay an egg, go home. Not a big deal. And these four things will involve you making a concerted decision that I made. I've been walking with the Lord for 22 years, roughly. And I would say these four things have been a regular part of my entire life. And, and I, I don't regret a moment of it. Have I had to give up other things? Yes, I have. And do I still give up other things? Yes, I do. But none of those other things matter if your life is falling apart inherently. Not all those things, if your home life isn't secure, isn't solid, isn't whole, everything else is just a place to hide. It's just a place to try to meet some need that you have. And so these four things have contributed to making me and my family spiritually healthy. And to me, that is the pillar on which everything else in my life rests. The first thing, they didn't say, well, now we're all saved. We need to put a band together. Let's get the band together because we need good music. That's what I was told when we were starting Calvary Chapel of Louvana. That, oh, you know, you want to have a big church? You want to have a successful church? You need good music. And I'm not, I love music. I love good music. I love skillful music. But that is definitely not first on the list. What's first on the list for, uh, as Luke records this? The first thing is they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Number one thing that they were committed to regularly, that were a pillar in their life, is they kept on learning. The apostles had to keep on teaching. What were they teaching? Well, they were teaching all the things that then would become our gospels. Remember, none of this was recorded at that time. They were living it in real time, and so they're teaching about Jesus. They're talking about the Beatitudes. They're telling about how Jesus raised the dead. They're talking about all the various teachings of Jesus. He told us to love one another. Remember when he washed our feet? There was a time we were together, and Jesus washed our feet. So they're telling the stories, 
and then eventually they get recorded and we call them the Gospels. But they, every day, not just Sundays, every day they were showing up at the temple, to this area where the apostles would be, and, you know, Peter's teaching over there, and, and Matthew's teaching over there, and there's just, there's this desire to, to share what has been learned. And then there's a desire to learn what's being shared. And, and I, the, now a lot of these things we're going to talk about are culturally challenging for us. Because culturally speaking, we prefer, and I don't think I'll have an argument on this, we prefer entertainment to education. And if you disagree with me, just go down to the library. The video section with movies is growing bigger than the book section. We are not a people who read anymore. We scan. We look for tidbits of information, but we don't... And I, I'm being general, I'm generalizing. Look, I read an article before I came down here. Kids, seven and a half hours on social media a day. TV, cell phone, Instagram, you know, Facebook, you name it, whatever it is. Seven and a half hours a day. So, and, and you, I don't, I don't have to, you know, you can do your own assessment for your own life. You know it's a lot easier to watch the string of meaningless YouTube videos at 1 a.m. than it is to pick up a book and read. Or, you know, now listening to a sermon, fairly low level of, of involvement, it's easy to sit and listen, but concentrating is a lot harder for us. We have a hard time concentrating. And I'm not sure that, that culturally we value, we value learning like we used to. Um, just think about what we pay teachers Average teacher salary, just over $50,000. That's average for the country, for U.S. Uh, average basketball player salary, over $5 million. So which do we value more, folks? We pay our athletes way more than we pay our, our teachers. We pay our entertainers way more than we pay our teachers. So I'm just presenting some information. You can disagree with me if you like. But whether you agree or disagree with me, the point is this group, this church, they knew they had more to learn. The minute you think you've got it all wrapped up, you're, you're finished. You, you think you can plumb the depths of the Word of God in your lifetime? Think again. They call it a, a master's of divinity. Maybe you have one. A ma- like that, that we could master divinity. Is that crazy or what? But from the time I got saved, I started at men's Bible study. Tuesday nights. And my wife knew, my family knew, Tuesday night is my night. And Helga had her night. She'd go and do her. I'd send her out. Go. Go study. Go with no commitment to be home. I'll put the kids to bed. I'll take care of cleaning up. You just go to your men's Bible study. I was committed. And that's where I learned and began to learn the Word of God. It began to come, become real to me. And I did that until we started Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. I was part of that men's group for probably, I don't know how many years, 10, 12 years. And then every Tuesday, if I was alive, that's why they call it dedicated. Because the only time you don't show up is if you're dead. That's when you know you're dedicated. Because I'm just there. It's just what I do. And I'm traveling for vacation. I find somewhere to go. Now it's Wednesday night. Like if I'm visiting Florida or visiting wherever, I'm looking for a church to go to because I want to keep learning, being challenged. I'm learning along with you guys. Don't look at me like, well, Pastor Steve, he's he's arrived, he's got it all. No, 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 I'm still learning. But they were dedicated to the apostles' doctrine. How dedicated are you to being here on a Sunday morning? You know, the the vast majority of our church, um, 
well, maybe, maybe it's more of a bell curve. I won't say the vast majority. That's not fair. The bell curve of our church is most people come once or twice a month. And that's not because they're traveling. And, I, and see, I told you I was going to step on toes. Can't say I didn't warn you. But, you know, once or twice a month, because for us, being dedicated to anything is hard. We got so many interests. We got so many directions. We got so many commitments to try to make. So we, we commit a little here and a little there. And we try to do just enough to keep everybody happy. And we're really, in trying to commit to everything, we're really committed to nothing. We're partially committed. And, and so for, for us, it's like, what, what, what fire am I going to put out this weekend? And um, so learning is just a low priority for a lot of people. And I hope today, if it's not been, that you can say, you know what? I want to make it a priority. Dads, I, I, you hear me say, hey, dads, you should have a family devotional. And then dad, well, I don't know enough. Nobody, you learn. That is the beautiful thing about it is you have a capacity to love God with your mind and to learn. So don't get frustrated because you don't know. Say, hey, I want to learn. I want to learn more. I want to put myself in places. I want to be in places to learn more of, of God's word. That's what they were dedicated to. One, the apostles' doctrine. Second thing, fellowship, man. Even more challenging. This is the Greek word koinonia, and it means joint participation. Joint participation. It means sharing in something. It's koinonia is, is like that idea that, you know, maybe if you ride a Harley and you're driving down the road and there's a guy riding a Harley coming the other way, or a girl, I won't be stereotypical, <laughs> riding a Harley coming the other way, and you just kind of like, you just give the... You just give the wave. You know the wave, right? When you see someone else that's got what you got. Or you drive a Jeep or something and just like, yeah, hey, I'm cool enough to ride a Harley. And I see you are too. We got that in common, right? Or maybe you were in the military and you meet someone else. You're a Marine and you meet someone else who's a Marine. There's an instant like, we, share, we got something in common. And that's, to, that's, that's what it means to have something in common. But the word koinonia is, is more than just to have something in common. It's to hold something in common. That doesn't mean that, like, I was a Marine in, in, the, in the 50s and, and you're a Marine now. That's cool, but that's not koinonia. Koinonia is we're both Marines now and we're serving in the same battle together. That's joint participation. That's having a share in something together. And that's fellowship. Fellowship is, we call it fellowship, but it's not just having cake together and not knowing each other's names. Fellowship is, is, means that we share one another's burdens, we share one another's struggles, it means we do life together. Now the challenge of this culturally, and, and I brought a book to uh, illustrate this, this is a book I've been reading called Alone Together, wonderful title, by Sherry Turkle, why we expect more from technology and less from each other. And, and I'll, before I even read this, I will tell you that uh, one of the markers of, of America as a nation, and I tell you all this because you have to recognize that God is going to call you to do things that don't feel natural. Because what feels natural is what culture does, what culture tells us. But God's word is right and good, and so we have to be saved out, remember? Be saved from this culture and into, into what God says. So uh, there's a, a group that studies cultures worldwide on a different, different numbers of rankings in different areas. One of the things they, just, they, they study is individualism. How, where does a culture rank? Either you're very highly individualistic on one hand or more community-based on the other. Like certain cultures are all about the community. You know, like a, commu like a communism would be an extreme of, it's not a, you're not an individual, you're just a, you're part of a group, and the group is what matters. 
America is at the top of the world scale, number one highest in individualism. And what that means uh, is that a highly, I wrote this quote down here, a highly individualistic society or culture such as the U.S. is indicates a society with more in a more individualistic attitude and relatively loose bonds with others. So just recognize culturally, and you'll, you'll admit this, that we have a tendency to bond very loosely with each other. That's cultural. That means that when I make you mad or when you make someone else mad, that the first reaction is to do what? I'm out of here. Koinonia doesn't do that. Koinonia says we are, we are one and, and departing is not an option, you know? That, that's, we work out our differences. That's what it means to be part of a community. But because we are a loosely bonding group, highly individualistic, if I get offended or if I don't like something that's happening, my needs supersede the needs of the community, so I'm out of here because I have, I'm, I'm just going to go somewhere else. That says that I'm not committed to the community. And so recognize that that's cultural and that's not biblical. Now, another thing that challenges us in that is this whole idea of online community. Even now, you can have online churches. Have you seen that? We're an online community. Now, this is not a Christian book. This is not something with, this is not a Christian author. But here's what she says about community. Uh, It says, her view of community, this is a girl who was finding some, uh, and saying that she's met a lot of good people in online communities uh, her view of community is skewed by what technology affords, although she claims that on confessional sites, so she was going to sites, I guess there are sites where you can just go and confess things. I don't know. It's, it's odd and strange, and they don't track your, your IP address, and so no one can look you up. Or, but they just go on and just got to get it off my chest. So you go to this online community and confess things, and she's, she's met a lot of good people there. Um, that's what she says, although she claims that on the confessional site she has met good people. When she gets feedback she doesn't like, She leaves the site so that she does not have to look at the criticism again. Communities are places where one feels safe enough to take the good and the bad. In communities, others come through for us in hard times, so we're willing to hear what they have to say, even if we don't like it. What Molly, the girl spoken of here, experienced is not community. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it a a duck, but it has to quack like a duck and has to walk like a duck to really be a duck. You can't call a chicken a duck. You'd be wrong. So what she says in here is a lot of people are saying, well, we need to redefine community, which is we're famous for that. We're redefining marriage. We're just redefining everything. We're lowering the bar in everything. So she says um, that the time is, to, some are saying the time is to broaden our definition of community to include these virtual places. But this strips language of its meaning. If we start to call online spaces where we are with other people in communities, it's easy to forget what the word used to mean. From its derivation, it literally means to give among each other. So she says she she votes for the, um, uh, the standard definition of the word, and she says that community can't be a word used to speak of weak ties. Communities are constituted by physical proximity, shared concerns, real consequences, and common responsibilities. Its members help each other in the most practical ways. And this is what they were committed to, to community, to being together. To be, to, that's why there's so much written in the New Testament about 
bearing with one another in love, forgiving one, one another. If you have a complaint against one another, then forgive you know, this, all of this in community because everything wants to drive us apart. And as a pastor, sometimes one of the most tiring things is trying to hold it together. Like I feel like responsible to hold it together because there's so much conflict and so much division and so many people hurting and being hurt. We're so easily offended. We're, we have so, such thin skin that the community feels like in our day and age, it's so fragile. But I long to be part of a community that's not fragile, where there can be honesty and there can be hurts and there can be forgiveness and that we work these things out, we work through it together. Not because we're just committed to one another, but because we're committed to the Lord. And where else are we going to go to get that? They couldn't go. If that happened in Acts chapter 2, well, I'm out of here, I'm going to another church. Uh, There isn't one. Guess you better work it out. Fellowship, koinonia, where we get the word communion. Uh, The breaking of bread is the next thing. Breaking of bread literally means in the Greek, breaking bread. How about that? It it speaks of a meal, eating together. And and in, in the early church, when they got together daily to break bread, to share a meal together... They would, uh, that would be in, the conjunction, in conjunction with the communion. So we have, you know, through time and because of abuses, we've separated a meal from the communion. Now we've tried to restore that here. Our Wednesday night agape meal is an attempt to try to get a sense of something like what they experienced there where they'd come together and have a meal, a fellowship meal, and then they would break bread and remember the Lord together in the context of that. There'd be teaching, uh, there'd be sharing of testimonies, and, and all that stuff was how... That went in the early church. But even now in families, again, culturally speaking, how hard is it, mom and dad, to get your family around the table for dinner to break bread together? I said this years ago. We, went, we took a three-week family vacation, 21 days together in, in Europe. And the best part about it was not seeing the sights and the castles and all the cool stuff. The best part about that vacation for us was 63 meals together. 63 meals together. And so families are not eating together and churches, you know, passing this stuff in the cup and the, the bread and individually speaking, it, it doesn't quite get there. And I, there's nothing we can do about that. It's a challenge, I think, in our day and age. But what you can do is you can find other people in the church to get together and break bread with on a small scale. Have a meal together. Invite people over. Our houses have become, well, this is our domain. It's my domain. I don't want people to see my dust bunnies. I don't want to have to clean. So... But again, notice that we're, we're all about online communities, but face-to-face stuff is hard. They got together for a meal. And when you're sitting across from the table with somebody, it's hard to hate them. It's hard to be mad at someone when, when you know, pass the bread, you jerk. You know, I just, it doesn't work so well. It's hard to do. But, and, then, and then to break bread and remember the Lord, It's impossible. It's impossible. But it's been, we've reduced it to this point where we can kind of still kind of go through the ritual of communion without the heart of communion. And so we come here, we break bread, and we go through the ritual. But meanwhile, our relationships are splintered. And so the exhortation would be, hey, work on mending relationships as and before and during and while you're here for communion. That's it. Jesus Christ died for you. to forgive your sins, to have your sins forgiven, and then you're going to go, well, I don't like that person. We don't have to be friends with everybody. It's not possible. But if there's any relationships that are, are, if you've got to come into church and you know you don't want to see that person, that's an indication that maybe you should mend that 
do what you can to do that. They would break bread together. They would share meals together. Remember, a lot of these people were from other countries. They were, they were there from other parts of the world. They, they, were, they would come and say, hey, I live here in Jerusalem. Why don't you come over to my house for lunch today? Remember a day in church where you'd meet someone new and you'd say, hey, come on over to my house for lunch today. How often does that happen anymore? I mean, now we go out to restaurants, which is cool too. You know? That's better than nothing. Say, hey, let's go get some lunch together at this restaurant. Eat together. It's good for us as a family isn't it? And finally, uh, and, and shouldn't be finally, prayers, the prayers. So they continued, this was a community that continued to recognize that it wasn't just about a social group. They were learning about the Lord and they were praying to the Lord. The other things can just be, you know, part of social groups. People find fellowship around all kinds of stuff, around where you went to school, around where you grew up, around what kind of hobbies you have. But Prayer and the doctrine are what make it continue to be centered around Jesus Christ. And, and we have a men's prayer here. And just speaking about continuing, prayer is tough work. We, it's a labor in prayer. And you don't do it if you don't have faith. It takes faith to pray. And we have a men's prayer group here that meets on Saturday mornings. We've met at different times throughout the years. But that prayer group, some of the guys in here remember. Brad remembers. Frank remembers. Tom Guthrie, the children's pastor, he remembers. Uh, Rick McIver, he was part of that early group. That, that prayer group, that Saturday morning prayer group has been in existence for how many years, Frank? 15, maybe 16 years. 16 years unbroken. And some of us are still part of that prayer group. And they, they continue to pray, not just individually, they did that too, but they continue to pray as a family, as a group. And the prayer meetings in the churches are some of the least attended. We have a, uh, one Sunday a month, we have an awesome sweet prayer meeting and every saturday morning men's prayers and i'm sure there's women's prayer meetings so this was part of again you get together in a community and that's how we bear one of those burdens i can pray for you i can pray with you and there's part of us that during that prayer time i reveal a little bit about what i'm going through in my life and helps to break down those walls of i am not telling anybody about my life i'm just going to be me there's no such thing as a solitary christian there's no such thing as a lone ranger and, and I have to give, you know, as a pastor, even in preaching, if I never shared anything about myself, I would seem like I was aloof or distant. If I shared too much about myself, I'd feel like I, you would think I'm self-centered and, and, you know, all narcissistic. So there's this, this, there's part of me, what I do, even when I preach, I reveal to you little bits about myself and my family, and that's so that you can know me. And a little bit about me. And, I, and you can reveal things to each other. And, that's, and then we pray about those things. And so they continued in prayer. Verse 43 says, And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Notice the wonders and signs weren't the first priority. It was the teaching. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So a lot of people look at this and say, well, that's like communism. No, communism is where you say, well, what's, what, what belongs to you belongs to everybody. It's forced upon you. Christianity is where I say what belongs to me belongs to you. If you need it, you can have it. God takes people who are takers and he makes them givers. It's a work of the Spirit of God. And there's a lot of people in the world that are takers. They're into everything for what they can get. But God takes takers 
and makes them into givers. And love does that. And they, they just, this, they, hey, you're here from out of town? Let me, let me take you to Goodwill, get you some clothes, you know? You've been here a little while, and, or let, let's come over to the house and have something to eat. If, if you need something, I'll, what I have, it, it seems that what my goods don't really have as much meaning to me anymore after I've been saved. My materialism doesn't seem as important now that we have a different perspective on life. We're filled with the Spirit. We're living for the Lord. We're going to heaven. What does my material stuff really matter? You can have it. As anyone, they were more, more concerned with meeting each other's needs than having more stuff. So continuing how often? Look at verse 46. Continuing how often? Daily. With one accord in the temple and breaking bread where? From house to house. I still think that's a good thing. I don't think we should be church-centric, building-centric. And we're working on more home fellowships. It's somewhere we've been weak as a church, and I'm hoping to see more people willing to commit to leading home fellowships and having that grow in our church. Break, uh, so they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. Doesn't that just sound like the kind of church you want to be part of? This just sound, that just sounds so nice. It sounds so easy and simple. Simplicity of heart is a word that means without rocks. Isn't that strange? Without rocks. But it means nothing, no hindrances, nothing to trip on. They were unhindered in their, in their relationships and in their walk. Praising God, verse 47, and having favor with all people. And look at this final note. The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So it was 3,120, 121, 122. It continued. People kept getting saved. Why? Didn't that the kind of community you want to be part of? Now people go to churches that they go, I don't know if I should invite anybody to this church. Like everybody's angry at each other. There's all kinds of church politics. And like, well, it's my, it's my home church. I'm a member here, but I ain't inviting anybody. Not to this kind of group. I want to have a church where people go, I want, I want other people to experience the love the joy, the teaching, the fellowship that, that I've experienced here. But that church is based on you doing what you have to do, to give, committing to these things. And notice the church pro- growth program. There was no church growth program. It's not what the church, what's the church down the road doing? Why are so many people going there? You know, and again, it's not about moon bounces and bounce houses and, grill, and grilling out and all that stuff to try to draw people in. If you guys love each other, and I know you do, that is the greatest evangelistic program on the face of the earth because it is so uncommon. It is so strange and unreal. You actually work out your differences? You actually love each other? You actually take care of each other when there's a need? Yeah, we do. Wow, I want to be part of that. Well, then you're going to have to take care of some people too. And the Lord... A lot of pastors, uh, you can just close your Bibles and, and the praise team is going to come up. But, you know, we live in a world where, in a church world, where the whole is on, um, on church growth strategies. And if we do this, we do that. Church growth strategies. And pastors think their responsibility is to grow the church. You know how much pressure that is to grow the church? You know how tempting it is to use fleshy means to fill seats? I don't want to have anything to do with that. I don't want to mess with that. That's dangerous. Teach the word, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer, and then you watch people flock to join us, to join this group.
That's the church, gro- church growth strategy. Amen? And it's not my job. Not my job at all. So don't yell at me if the church is shrinking. Don't yell at me or if it's growing and you're unhappy about that. Uh, I'm just here to teach the word and live the life and, and encourage you guys to do the same. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's stand and I'll pray. <coughs> Lord, thank you for your word, making things so simple. Lord, help us to, um, to hold on to steadfastly, unremitting in our commitment to those four simple pillars upon which the early church started. It's in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, Amen.